This is an ABC podcast. This is RN and you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. It's great to have your company. Welcome to the program. Historical injustice presents a complex problem for descendants of the original victims and perpetrators. When individuals and communities today are still suffering the consequences of wrongs that happened in the past, we can think of slavery, dispossession, invasion, the theft of land and resources. What exactly is owed to them and who should pay? Well, I read a really interesting book recently that tackles precisely this question. It's titled, Should Current Generations Make Reparation for Slavery? The book's author and our guest this week is Janet Thompson, Associate Professor in Philosophy at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Of course, um, countries that engaged in the slave trade or had slave colonies in the New World gained an awful lot. Some economists and historians believe that the slave trade kick-started the Industrial Revolution in, in Britain. Now, that's controversial. There are other ways in which people got capital for the Industrial Revolution, but certainly it would have played a role. A lot of institutions became very wealthy, as uh, even the Church of England became very wealthy as a result of the slave trade. So did a lot of banks, and so did a lot of individuals. Some of the opulence uh, of 18th century France uh, was due to the slave trade and the slave colonies that people got money from. But I, I think it's impossible to say that you can point to any heap of money, any heap of capital that's directly today what came from the slave trade, because, of course, there are lots of contributions to the wealth of nations. Sure. And of course, you can't isolate any, or it's very difficult to isolate any particular heap of money or wealth, as you say, but we'll get to that question of exactly how to identify Mm -hmm. what is owed and to whom. But um, I was very interested to uh, read a little bit of history in your book that suggested that, you know, reparation is not a new idea and, and that in the early 19th century, France actually demanded reparations from Haiti after the Haitians rose up against French rule and demanded their rights. And this was all tied to ramifications of the slave trade. Uh, yes. Well, of course, reparations probably have existed since international politics began. And it's quite common for countries to demand reparation if another country appropriates property that belongs to nationals. And that was a justification for France demanding reparation from Haiti after Haiti became an independent country after a war revolution. Uh, so to speak. And uh, this compensation was supposed to be for slave owners and plantation owners who had lost their uh, plantations as the result of slaves rising up and overthrowing them. Uh, This isn't uncommon either. The British offered a lot of, after banning the slave trade, the British offered a lot of compensation to former slave owners. All right. Anyway, France got reparation from Haiti, demanded reparation, and Haiti had no choice, really, if it wanted any kind of trade with France and the rest of the world. And interestingly enough, the United States, which you would think might be sympathetic to another country that gained its independence through revolution, was not at all uh, keen to recognize Haiti. Because they feared that it would encourage their slaves to rise up. Anyway, Haiti had no choice but to pay reparations, and it was paying reparations until 1947, when France finally forgave the rest of the debt. But it was a huge amount of money that the Haitians paid over time. 
Well, Aristotle has a template for reparative justice that you draw on in your book. Can you outline this? Well, Aristotle has one paragraph on the subject of reparations, and he says simply that if somebody unjustly takes something from someone else, then he ought to be forced to give that thing back to the person that he took it from. That sounds very simple and straightforward, but reparation is often, in many cases, not all that simple and straightforward. So from Aristotle, I've abstracted three principles. One is, of course, the principle of restitution. If somebody has taken something from somebody, yes, they ought to give it back to the person they took it from. But sometimes that person doesn't exist anymore, in which case there is a principle enshrined in law that people should not benefit from injustices they have done. So the second principle is that the person who took something should have that material gain divested from them. Um, disgorged is the legal term that's often used. And the third principle, well, after all, sometimes the thing is no longer in existence that was taken. And the third principle that I extract from Aristotle is that of compensation, that the victims of injustice ought to be compensated for the harm they suffered. And that may be not just a material harm either. Uh, there are psychological harms that are connected with injustices. I'd like to look at some of the complicating factors, if you like, around reparative justice, one of which being simply the passage of history, where if we consider that the slaves of the 18th and 19th centuries are long dead, as are the the slave traders, the perpetrators, why should this historical injustice still require reparations to be made when there are strong arguments for focusing on present issues, contemporary issues around poverty and health and so on, distributive justice rather than reparative justice? Well, distributive justice would be a good idea, but the, I think one of the reasons why reparation is um, still very important to people is that in many cases, people care about the history of their forebears, the history of their community, and if wrong was done to them, they often are in some ways psychologically harmed. In any case, they want some sort of acknowledgement that wrong was done. And also, of course, there can be long-term consequences of injustice. I argue in my book that slavery, although it's long past in the United States, has had effects that have reverberated through the generations and have led to other injustices and other harms. So sometimes an uh, injustice just simply won't go away. And of course, sometimes reparation is something that can be due for a long period of time. France thought it was in title to demand reparation from Haiti, and which lasted for generations and generations. And it seems to me that it's not unreasonable for Haitians to say, we want that back, even though it's been a long time ago that um, uh, France made its original demand. Yes, indeed, because, because of course, the, the Haitians have, have no access to the wealth and the benefits of modern France, whereas if, if you compare it to the situation of black Americans, these communities are at least theoretically able to share in the prosperity afforded to all Americans, but it doesn't work between nations. Yes, and, and it doesn't. If it were, and that's another reason why distributive justice doesn't, isn't always relevant, within a country, injustices of the past can sometimes be overcome 
uh, by the sharing of wealth, by not having any more discrimination against the people who were at once who once were the victims. Uh, so injustices can be superseded by what happens in a nation, and distributive justice helps a lot. Um, but of course, between nations, there no, um, there's no such. Uh, well, most people don't think there's any such requirement to share wealth, and so their re- reparation becomes particularly relevant. So, how can people living today be said to be responsible for reparation for slavery? Well, it's true that people today, there's no people today who actually put Africans on ships or made them work on plantations. So people are not directly responsible for slavery, obviously. But there are different ways of being responsible for making reparations. You can be responsible for reparation if you actually did it, but you can also be responsible for reparation because you belong to a community or group that in the past has done an injustice. For example, some companies in Germany that used um, Jews and others as slaves during the Nazi period are now paying into a fund to um, compensate the victims who are still alive. Now, the people who are in charge of these companies, the people who now invest in them, had nothing whatsoever to do with the injustices of the Nazis. But nevertheless, it seems appropriate to make, since the company did it, to uh, make the company pay, which means that present people have to make sacrifices to pay. Also, of course, people can have a responsibility for reparation, as, as you suggested, because they benefited from an injustice and have never made the return that should be required. Or people can be responsible for reparation because they possess something that really belongs to somebody else, what legal people sometimes call unjust enrichment. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the Nazis there because um, I sometimes think of the Adolf Eichmann defence at his trial in Jerusalem where he said that you know, he was just following orders. But this also comes up in arguments about reparative justice where it said that slave owners in the 18th century, say, were operating according to the law and the morality of their day. So Adolf Eichmann aside, how can we say that those actions were wrong under those circumstances? Well... From our perspective, and using the kinds of reasoning we think is perfectly legitimate, we regard slavery wrong. In fact, it seems to us a no-brainer to call slavery wrong. There are so many different reasons for condemning it. So, And it's our perspective that really counts if we think we have any responsibilities for reparation. Now, I think it's a good question whether the people of the, of the time, uh, say in the American South, uh, who argue often that the slavery was perfectly justified, whether they are innocent, whether we should say, all right, they were just going along with what was believed at the time. Well, I'm not sure we can say that because, first of all, there were lots and lots of other people who had arguments against slavery, which we think maybe they should have paid more attention to. But whatever we say about the guilt or innocence of the people who actually engaged in the slave trade, as I said, it's our perspective that's important in determining whether we owe reparation. And from our perspective, it seems clear that what they were doing was wrong. 
On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Janet Thompson, author of a very interesting book that came out earlier this year, posing the question, should current generations make reparation for slavery? When we sit down today to consider who owes what to whom for historical injustices, the picture gets very complicated. Cotton-growing land in the American South was originally taken from the indigenous people by white settlers. In Haiti, Spanish invaders took the land from the people they found there, and then they were kicked out by the French. So how do we negotiate this sort of historical tangle of perpetrators and victims? Well, the French socialist Pradam once said, all property is theft. And by that he means if you go back far enough, taking anything that people own nowadays, you'll find some injustice in the past. And uh, one thing you could say about that is, well, all right, perhaps uh, ideally all property should be put into a common fund and redistributed according to, uh, you know, rules of distributive justice or something like that. But that's not going to happen. So it seems to me one thing you could say about that is that, well, all right, we should presume that people who have got things justly um, have a right of ownership over them, but there can be questions about their real right to ownership based upon the claims of people living right now. But I do think that there are problems about ownership, and I suggest that sometimes, as in the case of Haiti, it seems fairly clear to me, at least, that Haiti lost material wealth that it shouldn't have lost, that France was wrong in demanding reparations for um, compensating slave owners who were, after all, doing wrong. And that that's, argument's fairly clear, but it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to justify saying that present-day descendants of slaves in the United States are owed some sort of uh, restitution, maybe the the pay that their ancestors used to have. Sometimes I think it gets a little bit um, difficult to say that somebody who is rather removed from forebears who were done an injustice ought to get what was supposed to be given to their forebears. So I think there are different arguments you use in different cases of reparation. And sometimes the argument, well, these people are really owed what their ancestors you should have got, is a little bit difficult to make. When you look at the disadvantages faced by some black Americans and black American communities today, these have many historical causes, don't they? I mean, you have slavery, but you also have the Jim Crow laws. You have a a history of unjust housing policies and on and on. How is it possible to isolate slavery as a single factor and to determine the degree of its responsibility for those disadvantages? Well, I don't think you can. And in fact, some people have argued that they agree that black people in America deserve reparation, but they think that there are more recent events that they should um, demand reparation for, like, for example, housing policies in the United States that sometimes called redlining, which prevented black people from moving into the well-serviced middle-class areas, relegating black people mostly to slums where they got very bad services and very bad schooling, something that affects not just the people concerned, but their children and probably their children's children as well. But all right, there may be many things um, that black Americans could demand reparation for. But I think that all of these things, or, or most of them, 
go back to slavery, that slavery is at their roots. It's certainly at the roots of the Jim Crow laws that were instituted in southern states after the Civil War, which um, were really meant to keep black people in their place and, if possible, uh, make them continue to do the sorts of uh, work and have the status that they used to have as slaves, or close to anyway. And even discrimination in northern states, I think, had a lot to do with the way black people were regarded because of slavery. Uh, they just couldn't be treated as ordinary as uh, the way that immigrants from, say, Germany or, or Norway or Italy were treated. And um, they're, they're, they faced uh, different kinds of problems. And this was all rooted in slavery, I believe. So I think that the best way of stating it is that black Americans deserve reparation because of a history that's rooted in slavery, but that history contained other things as well. There are interesting uh, philosophical issues around agency here, aren't there, and the extent to which the American government and the American people are or, or are not the same people who perpetrated the injustices of slavery. What do you make of that issue? Well, I think that comes down to what a community is. The United States, which allowed slavery to take place for a long period of time, was, I suppose you could say, a an agent of a sort. It did things. It was responsible for things. And I think that one of the reasons we support this kind of agency that states have is because of our interests. And when our interests are intergenerational as well as, uh, you know, present day. We want there to be an agent that will enable things to continue, that will enable institutions to survive that our children will, will also inherit. Uh, we have desires that are intergenerational. So I think that you can't pin down a an agent like this and say, well, it was responsible then for something, but now we've got a different political agent who's not, that's not responsible for that. Certainly, um, societies change politically, but there's a continuation of generations. There's a continuation of interests that these intergenerational agents like states are and, and to some extent companies are supposed to serve. And for that reason, I think there's also content continuity of responsibility. What do you make of the Australian context, these, um, these arguments around reparation and uh, reparational justice? How do they work in debates around Indigenous Australians and their claims for justice? Well, in the book, I make uh, three different arguments for reparation because I think case is different and they, you can't make the same kind of case for every uh, problem that comes up. But I think there's a good reason to think that all these three arguments apply to the uh, case of Aborigines and Aboriginal communities as well. Uh, well, the first case is that, um, after all, things were taken from Aboriginal communities. Um, and although they can't expect to get back everything they had, we're not going to be forced out. It would be unjust to, for us to become boat people or something like that. But some parts of what was taken can certainly be given back. Also, we benefited from the dispossession of Aborigines. And, and although um, uh, Aborigines are citizens and get benefits from being citizens, nevertheless, it, I think it's hard to argue that we have really uh, properly shared these benefits. 
And uh, the second thing is that the harm that was done by dispossession of Aborigines still exists. It still affects people living today. So I think all of these arguments are relevant. Now, the question of what should be done, I think, is is very difficult to answer. But nevertheless, uh, ho- however that's decided, uh, I think these arguments are very relevant to the Aboriginal case. Well, the moral case for reparation is one thing, uh, and then the legal case is another. And you say that we need a change of paradigm in order to have the morality materially influence the legal sphere. What is this paradigm change? Well, I think mostly, uh, going back to Aristotle, reparation is conceived by him and and legally predominantly as uh, simply giving back what was unjustly taken. And I think that reparation should be much more about reconciliation Um, particularly because of the psychological harms that injustice caused. It should be uh, something that aims at um, making it possible for people who have been done an injustice to be able to live in harmony, in peace, and good feeling with uh, those uh, who are the successors of those that did them an injustice. Not that reparation is the same as reconciliation, but nevertheless, I think that particularly when talking about injustices that are historical and are still affecting people today, a lot of it should be about reconciliation. So does that then necessitate a change of direction, if you like, if you, if you think about reparative justice as being backward-looking in that Aristotelian sense, you, uh, you offer reparation for things that happened back then, that we need to rethink the purpose of reparation in terms of future opportunities for, for prosperity rather than in terms of past injustices? Is that the sort of thing you're getting at? Yes, for for several reasons. One is, of course, that things have changed. As I said, uh, well, most of Australia once uh, once most of Australia used to belong to Aboriginal groups, um, but there's no question that we should give back the whole of Australia to Aboriginal groups because we're here. Colonial Australians have been here for a long time. We depend upon uh, where we are in order to live. Uh, There has to be some sort of compromise or reconciliation um, that will enable both groups to go forward. So there's that. And then there's also, I think, the uh, importance for the people who have been done an injustice to find a way of living with those who have done them a wrong. Well, at a time when societies, uh, certainly American and Australian societies, are are deeply divided on these kinds of racial issues, issues of civil rights and indigenous rights and so on, highly politicised, how hopeful are you that the, the sorts of arguments you're putting forward for reparation are going to be heard and are going to be acknowledged by the people who have the power to do something about it? It seems to me that a lot of um, societies have engaged in reparative acts. As I said, apology is a reparative act. And uh, we have had a number of apologies recently in Australian politics. Now, that doesn't mean that people are properly compensated for the harm that they've suffered. But even that sometimes happens. So there have been a lot of movements to reparation in spite of the political climate. Also, I don't think reparation is particularly a left-wing issue um, because it's based on ideas of justice that everybody shares, and I think in many cases, particularly people on the right, that, you know, that things that belong to people ought to be returned to them that people ought to get what they deserve. 
that people who have done wrong things ought not to um, benefit from the harm that was done, that if people own something that doesn't belong to them, they should give it back. These things, I think, are as much believed by people on the right as people on the left. Now, I think what's controversial about reparation is when uh, it looks like there's going to be a lot of compensation involved. No one, I think, wants to make huge sacrifices in order for proper reparation to be made. But I think that most people who ask for reparation are not asking for huge sums of money. They're asking for something that will make their lives better. And that seems to be a perfectly reasonable demand that uh, a lot of people can accept. Janet Thompson, Associate Professor in Philosophy at La Trobe University in Melbourne and the author of Should Current Generations Make Reparation for Slavery? It's a book I highly recommend and we're going to put publication details on the website, abc.net.au slash rn. This is The Philosopher's Zone and you'll find us on the program menu. You can also find us via the ABC Listen app and stay tuned to RN for more on issues around race and racism coming up this week as part of the ABC's Australia Talks project. And that's it for this week, but uh, I just want to give a little plug to what's coming up next week on the program. It's the first in a five-part series on philosophy in the wake of empire. Over the month of November, we're going to be looking at the legacy of colonialism and how our colonial past has shaped not just the discipline of academic philosophy, but a number of really crucial social and political issues. Race, migration, women's rights, religion and secular society. We're going to be looking at all of these through a post-colonial lens. Although, of course, in the background lurks the question of whether or not we can say we're in a post-colonial era at all. Here's a quick preview. When people first encountered philosophy in Africa, Asia, they were very impressed with it initially. It was only as Western imperialism grew that they talked themselves into the idea that there couldn't be philosophy outside of the West. And this is historically correlated with things like uh, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, uh, the development of the East India Company, later the Opium Wars in China. People needed a rationalization for why they were entitled to subjugate other cultures, and the rationalization became that these people weren't, were not fully rational, they were not fully capable of governing themselves, and part of that was they weren't fully capable of doing philosophy. So in the beginning of the modern era, part of what people like Descartes were doing in the West was trying to draw a clear line between philosophy and religion. And then when people encountered philosophy in India and China, initially they classified it on the philosophy side of that divide. And in fact, uh, Christian Wolff, although he's not very well known today, was a major philosopher in the early Enlightenment in the West, and he caused quite a stir because he argued that we could learn from Confucius that it is possible to have a morality without belief in God. And so this was classifying then Chinese thinkers as on the secular side of the philosophy-religion divide. But then as people started to denigrate 
Asian philosophy and African philosophy, they said, well, these things really aren't philosophy. They're local religions or they're wisdom literature. And you still get that uh, account today. Uh, Indian philosophy is often taught not in philosophy departments, but in departments of religious studies. And people who are getting degrees in philosophy are often discouraged from taking courses in it on the grounds that, well, it's religion, it's not philosophy. Philosophy in the Wake of Empire. That's a five-part series starting next week right here on The Philosopher's Zone. So I hope you can join me then. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now.